0: We are the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it.
1: Look at Greta. Greta Thunberg's entire campaign started as a little girl sitting outside um, a government institution protesting about climate change. And now we see kids across the world standing up and calling for action.
2: This pandemic is the first great example of what ecological breakdown looks like, feels like.
1: I absolutely hate private jets. don't understand why anyone has them and why anyone uses them.
0: Welcome back to Generation One, the podcast from University College London. I'm Matt Winning and today we're recording the Final episode of season one. I'm joined by my co host, Mark Maslin, today. Unfortunately, Helen Chersky, our other co host, is busy. She's over at the BBC filming something fancy, I imagine. So she can't be with us today, but I am joined by Mark. Hi, Mark.
3: Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm good. It's lovely to have these little conversations with you. Well, I think it's nice that people realise that you you and I can actually uh, chew the cud on some of the deepest and darkest things about climate change. Because, of course, you're doing finance today, which I always get reminded by people saying, "Follow the money." So this is this is mm. your area of expertise. It is.
0: I'm an economist, which most people detest. <laughs> like, we're not the sexy part of the climate change conversation. I'm talking about well, what is the impact going to be in the economy, and you know, some people like that mostly people from government lots of other people are like I'm not really you know this is this this just gets me down or it's too kind of money orientated I guess it depends on whether you love money or not
3: but I also think that people don't realize how many economists there are in the world and where they are I mean if you go into any government department there's a load of economists in there always basically supporting the other civil servants to say this is how much it's going to cost. This is how much we're going to make. You know, so I, mm-hmm. I think people misunderstand a what economists do, and b how many of you there are.
0: There are. I still find you know people talking about derivatives and equities and other stuff, and I switch off almost instantly when that kind of comes up in conversation. But it's incredibly important, as you said.
3: Well, I'm amazed because I think COP twenty six was the first time that money was front and center. I mean, if you think about it, Mark Carney got a group of 450 banks and insurers together who basically cover $130 trillion. I mean, that's one and a half times the sort of GDP of the world uh, to tackle climate change. You're, you've hit the nail on the head there which is it's great signing up to stuff which I think
0: lots of companies are doing and the financial sector appears to be doing now it's then actually putting plans in place you know solid concrete plans of of, of what's going to happen that that really needs to be um, spelled out a bit more which is exactly what you're saying
3: but you've got some great guests on today haven't you
0: we do we do we have uh, to talk about finance we've got two incredible guests first I'm talking to Heather Mackay. Uh, who is a policy advisor at E3G Uh, and then after that I'm going to be speaking with Ash Gadiali uh, who is a filmmaker and activist who organises the climate justice collective Wretched of the Earth.
3: Uh, I have to say I have a lot of time for Ash because uh, earlier in 2021 he launched the 1.5 degree charter That chart, and I hope he will talk about it, was really showing the sort of clear need for climate justice and proper financing. So it
0: has been absolutely wonderful doing these podcast episodes. We're on episode six, the final episode of this first series. Please give us a second series. And if you do want to listen to all episodes, they are uh, basically just Google Generation One, the climate podcast, uh, UCL, and you will get there. Mark, what uh, have been your highlights uh, of these different episodes? Because we've covered
3: quite a lot of ground. If you think about it, we've covered a huge range in just six episodes. We've had Matt Disney brilliantly talking about how he monitors trees so we can know how much carbon they store. We've got... Juliet russell one of my ex-students who's now head of sustainability at stella mccartney talking about the need for regulation to actually make the fashion industry move to more sustainable footing to help save the planet
0: i think that was incredibly well uh, summarized there mark so hopefully we'll do a lot more of these and um, but it's been a pleasure working with you it's been it's been good fun
3: it has been great fun
1: okay well thanks very much mark you're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action.
0: First up, today we are chatting with Heather McKay, who is a policy advisor at E3G, a climate change think tank, and is also, more importantly, a fellow Scot. Um, hi Heather, how are you doing?
1: Hi Matt, I'm good, and I'm very glad you got my last name right as well.
0: We could probably have a good Hour-long chat just about being someone Scottish living in London and and how people think that you're Irish all the time. Oh, but oh. we'll skip that for another podcast, I guess. So very quickly, did you go to COP twenty six? I did, I. What What was your sort of uh, takeaway from from the two weeks?
1: I think a couple of a, a couple of key things came out of COP twenty six. Firstly, that you know finance really is now on a central stage when it comes to international uh, conversations around climate change, and Zooming into what that actually means, there's two aspects. I mean, firstly, like finance is the essential bridge between nice pledges and nice words on climate action and actually doing it and actually delivering it. So we need to make sure that money is flowing to the projects across the world where it needs to be flowing. And COP, frankly, didn't really deliver on that front. Mm-hmm. On the you know on the other piece, we also want to make sure that when investors and when businesses are thinking about climate change and they're making pledges on net zero, they're actually doing so with integrity. And so I think that credibility and integrity question and how we build regulation, and how we build financial architecture to support that was also a central theme of COP. And in that dimension, we've made a huge amount of progress.
0: Those aspects that you said there that are, there has been some progress what what sort of things are we, are we seeing a bit of progress in, in terms of that side of things?
1: We saw a number of announcements around, um, you know, building credibility into private sector and investor net zero commitments. So the Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the UK, came out in a speech and announced two major things. Firstly, the creation of a net zero financial centre in the UK. So basically a green city of London, which is momentous. And to support that, he announced that the the UK would be implementing mandatory transition plans for all listed companies and financial institutions across the UK. And the reason that's so important is transition plans are the inevitable next step to a company making a net zero commitment. A transition plan at its simplest is basically how a company, how a financial institution is going to get itself to net zero. So, the governments really failed on the delivery part of finance. So, the 100 billion, um, a commitment from developed countries to go to developing countries to support them in transitioning to net zero, that's now five years delayed, and that's absolutely appalling.
0: That 100 billion, that's basically, we're talking about money from governments, essentially. Is that right? Going to other, you know, going to other governments or other kind of pots of money elsewhere to help to help developing countries?
1: It's a mix. So it's yeah, it's a mixture of right, government right. finance and also you know government finance being used to support private finance in investing right. in developing countries too. So the government's really focused on this public policy, private regulation, private finance regulation piece. So that's where we see transition right. plans coming out. What they're not doing and what the UK's spending review um, a few months ago proved is stumping up the cash that the government needs to do to support private finance and to support new markets in scaling up and delivering new products that companies can you know, go away and make profit with and investors can go away and invest in. So the UK is a leader on developing innovative financial architecture, but I'm um, wary about you know being too happy clappy about it because they're not doing right. the public <laughs> finance policy piece the supportive pieces around it that need to happen yeah. if we're going to get to net zero
0: and you need to both you need kind of both of those pieces to be able to Aye. to move it forward at scale
1: I exactly and actually just just to um bring that out a little bit more clearly what's really interesting is so the chancellor's speech focused on this idea of a net zero financial center so And and frankly, the government's entire thinking about that is slap a transition plan on the company, on you go, the city of London will be green. I think that everyone in the space knows that that's not going to be true. You need to do a bunch of other stuff too. Whereas a couple of months ago, in the greening finance roadmap that came out in October, the UK pledged to create a net zero financial system. So the difference between a net zero financial centre and a net zero financial system, and herein comes the joy I have in trying to explain Financial architecture but (laughs) the difference between a system and a a center is the center is purely focused on the private uh, private finance however the city of london sits within a broader financing landscape in the uk so that is really public finance and public policy working hand in hand with private finance regulation and so that's what we want to see the uk doing is thinking about the transition not just as a the free market will take us take us there magically because investors are innovators which is partly true but actually government has a role in shaping and creating and supporting markets and it can't abandon that role otherwise we're never going to we're never going
0: to get to net zero yeah that's really helpful in terms of clarification so in terms of scaling up green finance because it's a thing that's you know talked about, you know, we, we, we need more finance. What is the sort of scale of the problem that we're talking about here in terms of where we are and where we need to get to in terms of the amount of money that's been, you know, essentially spent on solving this problem?
1: Mm, that's a really good question. And so I think just to ground out, the, the um, Committee on Climate Change, which is kind of an independent quango That advises the government on its climate policies. This body basically have said that, you know, from 2020 to 2030, we need to see an additional investment of ten billion every single year in the transition, scaling up to fifty billion every single year from 2030 towards 2050. So a huge amount of money. This current spending review, I think, put forward I think it was under six if you actually calculate it over the next three years. So really we're, there's a huge gulf um between where we need to, uh, what we need in terms of investments and where we are at the moment
0: and is it, i guess is it, is it true that this you know the scaling up of of that is going to really need to happen over this kind of next decade you know to to be able to put the things in place that need to be there f- to solve the problem over the next 30 you know if we're going to be net zero by 2050
1: um in terms of when we should invest the Office for Budgetary Responsibility and other independent kind of institution around government um, has said that if we start investing in, even 10 years later, the costs of the transition or the cost of this investment is going to double. So it's really important that we start now. And it's really important, you know, not only just in terms of you know making sure the UK actually meets its own targets, but also there's a, there's a part of it, international competitiveness here. I think that, you know, we'd all agree we'd like the UK to be the home and to be the you know the world leader in creating new markets like heat pumps or so and so forth. But that's not going to happen if we twiddle our thumbs and wait to act and wait for someone else to do it first. So if we're going to be this competitive global Britain post-Brexit, then we actually have to start doing the work to create the new markets and create the new um, you know, lines of business and lines of competitiveness that are needed to be competitive on the global stage.
0: Yeah, yeah, no absolutely. How do you see the role of the treasury and how crucial was the role of the treasury because I I think, you know, climate change has often been seen as this separate thing that can be dealt with by a department somewhere and isn't necessarily central to government spending and every decision that governments make?
1: Oh, that is such an interesting question and I could talk for about an hour about it, but I'll try not. (laughs) So um, I think firstly, the Treasury is absolutely crucial. The finance, any finance ministries across the world are absolutely crucial in governments actually meeting their net zero commitments. As the net zero review showed, which was the government's document, talking about the cost of the transition and what it was going to mean for the average person so the, and the country, the fact that that report only focused on the costs and not the potential co-benefits and the potential economic returns that we were going to see really, right. to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, shows that the Treasury knows the, the cost of everything and the value of nothing when it comes to climate change. Right. And so <laughs> I think that it's it's... We need to see that cultural shift happen within Treasury and with the it was particularly within the mind of the Chancellor that net zero is an investment. We're going to get a return. It's not just a handout, as I was saying. It is actually Mm -hmm. um, going to get us to going to get us an immense amount of um, benefit.
0: Yes, Uh, we have a question from a student, Pranav Satish, a student at UCL. In a typical neoliberal fashion,
2: I think the onus is being put on the individual. Uh, specifically young individuals, we need to address the structural prerequisite that has allowed this exploitation of the planet through economic and social reform
0: rather uh, than just telling an individual to change their behaviour, which I neither think is sustainable or has enough of an impact. Very much sounds like a student, in a good way... Um, (sighs) Heather, if you do have anything to say on that, I think that's a
1: really good question. Actually, we see it coming out a lot. However, I think it's a bit of a red herring. So, I don't think that individual action or fighting for systemic change are mutually exclusive. Yes, it's uh, you know it's been a long and concerted lobbying process to blame the individual for the huge systemic and um, and wicked problem that is climate change, when actually large companies across the world are responsible for 70% of the global emissions. So yes, it's it's not about saying that just by going vegan or walking to work instead of taking your car, we're going to change the world. I completely agree with that. However, I also think it's really important to create positive change in the environment around you through things like making more ethical choices in what you eat, buying less and making sure it's sustainable. And also, you know, You know, doing everything our mum tells us, right? Like not lettering and being nice to people and so on and so forth. Because it does create, you you never know what happens. Um, You can never really understand the knock-on effect, the butterfly effect that can happen when you step up in your individual life and take positive choices. I mean, look at Greta. Greta's uh, entire campaign, Greta Thunberg's entire campaign, started as a little girl sitting outside um, a government institution protesting about climate change and now we see kids across the world standing up and calling for action so i really think it's important that yes call for systemic change yes vote yes you know buy ethically and so on and so forth and support the right companies and make your voice heard but also remember that you know these things also start at home
0: yeah i think the the answer to that question was very much yes which is we need. Do we need to do this? Yes, we do. Do we need to also address structural change? Yes. So, Heather, thanks so much for joining us. I wanted to ask you one final question today, which is something we've been asking our guests about. Um, if you could put something in a time capsule for climate change so that, it, you know, something that maybe didn't exist in 30 years' time, uh, what would that be?
1: I absolutely hate private jets. I think they just... I don't understand why anyone has them and why anyone uses them, and especially when anyone flies them to a climate conference. Hypocrisy doesn't help. It just doesn't help.
0: Got you. It's really been fantastic speaking to you. Um, thanks for coming on and talking about um, finance and uh, yeah, essentially how much there is to do over the next decade.
1: Uh, I mean, there is a lot to do, right? There is. But we've taken really important first steps at COP to build the architecture around enabling the market to meet net zero and also making sure that government can hold them to account. You're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action.
0: So cutting global carbon emissions requires a worldwide response, but it shouldn't cost more for those economies with the least. A recent UCL study that I was an author on, showed that countries in the global south are given much less favourable credit terms than wealthier nations, often because of who they are. As a result, it makes it much harder for them to access the finance they require to build the cleaner, greener industries needed to reach zero carbon emissions sooner. Also, there are questions around adaptation and loss and damage that need to be answered as well. To get into some of these issues... I am joined by Ash Gadiali uh, on the line, who is a activist in residence at University College London. As an activist in residence at UCL, what do you think success would be for you and for, for getting others to act on climate change?
2: I guess what a lot of what I do is move through the climate space and an attempt to bring perspectives of global justice, which really often means kind of just uh, reckoning with The prevalence of racial inequality and and the way that ongoing inequalities hamper the kind of climate action that that often very well-meaning individuals, communities and groups, even governments, you know, are... Um, intent on bringing about without necessarily seeing the interconnection with race, with with kind of uh, historic legacies of empire and slavery and and the ways in which the dynamics that come out of those histories continue to shape the crisis that we're in now and and, and the future that, that we're creating.
0: Ash, how important do you think finance is to solving climate change and how important is it for the developing world in particular?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's the it's, it's central issue, really. As we now move through the 2020s, the challenge of um, mobilising finance and, and distributing finance to the, the, the parts of the global economy that, that need it the most, there's the question of decarbonisation, but there's also the question of, yeah. of financing climate impacts, loss and damage in particular, which, you know, is, is escalating year on year.
0: You're right that it's not just about mitigation. How do you think we can change that conversation to kind of make it, as you say, kind of about those three, I guess, pillars that people talk about?
2: The conversation sort of shifted rapidly over, say, the last 10 years, and we've gone from a a paradigm of widespread denial of climate change as a problem um, to one in which at the start of 2020, we suddenly saw like, you know, big corporate actors like BlackRock suddenly, you know, saying now we're kind of committing to the transition uh, and and to decarbonisation. There were kind of pitfalls in the paradigm that was kind of emerging, I guess what might be described as the green capitalist agenda, in that it was largely predicated on economic growth. I think that it became a corporate, a sort of shareholder common sense to actually start banking on the the mobilization of finance around a kind of green transition. I think what's really interesting about the research that you and Nadia have been doing it kind of points to the limitations of the growth paradigm. It's not a very effective strategy for governing a process, an effective process of decarbonisation, as you've kind of shown really in your research.
0: Yeah, and I think the research sort of touches on the fact that what is good f- or easy for the developed world isn't necessarily the same for the global south. So can you very Quickly tell me about this 1.5 degree charter, which you were involved in.
2: Yeah, sure. In the kind of run up to COP26, um, I was in the middle of conversations between civil society groups, various representatives of, of the COP26 team at the cabinet office or the... The UNFCCC, and I guess when I kind of stepped into this role as activist in residence at UCL, like increasingly amongst uh, climate scientists, there was a a question around that time, certainly amongst civil society players, of whether it was uh, prudent to talk about 1.5C and the possible breach of 1.5C as a banner issue. Given the likelihood of breaching 1.5C, there was a widespread comms consensus that was to nurture, you know, good vibes amongst the public and a kind of sense of hope and and positivity. We're facing a, a kind of moment of real ecological catastrophe, but we feel that people in positions of influence feel that we, we mustn't talk about, you know, we mustn't look that crisis square in the face. Yeah. We mustn't talk about the reality of what it is for fear of feeding anxiety. And so I, I guess the strategy behind the charter was about how do we, uh, how do we uh, articulate a kind of new, a new common sense?
0: If we can briefly in the last couple of minutes, just chat about what needs to happen in places like Africa, um i see like what needs to happen in ter- in terms of those aspects of mitigation adaptation and and loss and damage you know wh- what do you see being the main f- focus
2: if we can actually start to get our heads around a kind of global strategy for you know like how front loading investment n- now actually saves lives m- saves money in the long term yeah then you know I, I think that what that might do is like open is like lay the the groundwork in a sense for a great new infrastructure project we need to be working towards some you know, a kind of a, a great sort of structure of care you know this pandemic is is the first great example of what ecological breakdown looks like feels like you know but mm. it's in a sense a dress rehearsal for what happens as climate impacts ac- accelerate i think that you know like really going back to basics of what a dignified human life looks like you know access to housing access to healthcare sanitation food water and and thinking about project the you know investing in the projects that that create an infrastructure that that delivers that right into the front lines of of this emergency.
0: Okay, Ash, one very last question before you go. We have a section of the podcast where we ask our guests to contribute to our Generation 1 time capsule to be opened up at some point in the future by future generations. Is there anything you would add to a time capsule on climate change?
2: Yeah, sure. I would would add a... I've got it in my hand. It's a big, chunky tome. It's called uh, Black Reconstruction in America by W.E.B. Du Bois. Not obviously about climate mhm but i just think that really any effective path out of this crisis that we're in really needs to start with a kind of thorough grounding in decolonial thinking got you well
0: thanks so much i think that's an excellent addition to what we have so that was me talking to ash gadiali about climate finance and also about activism and the role in systemic change required. Next up, Mark Maslin is back again to give us his climate news stories of this week. So
3: here is Mark. This is Mark Maslin and welcome to our weekly roundup of climate related stories. First, we start with a letter that we have sent to the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, to urge the UK government to withdraw the $1 billion support for Total's Mozambique liquid natural gas project, as it's directly in conflict with the Paris Agreement's 1.5 degree temperature target, and also contradicts the government's own pledge in March 2021 to end the financing of overseas fossil fuel projects. The letter has been signed by myself and leading climate and energy experts from UCL and other universities from around the country. More bad news in Australia. Scott Morrison is pledged to increase fossil fuel production with new gas basins and pipelines already planned. Japan has announced that they want to develop a hydrogen economy instead of a renewable energy economy. But of course, we'll be reliant on countries like Australia to burn vast amounts of coal to create the hydrogen. There is, however, some good news. Norway will not grant any new oil exploration licenses for virgin or little-explored areas from 2022 onwards. And great news, Shell pulls out of the Cambo oil project in the UK's North Sea. The energy giant says it is not economic however we are very positive about this because it shows that there is a movement within the UK to stop fossil fuel exploration both in the North Sea and far north of Shetland.
0: So that is it for the final episode of Series 1 of Generation 1 from UCL, turning climate science and ideas into action. Thank you so much for joining us for Series 1. We've loved making it and look forward to seeing you again next year for Series 2. In the meantime, you'd like to ask a question or suggest a guest you would like to hear on Generation 1, you can email us at podcasts at ucl.ac.uk. For more information about UCL's work in the climate space, do head over to the UCL Generation One website or follow us on social media. Hashtag UCL Generation One. Um, so, thank you very much for today's episode. In particular, thank you, Heather Mackay and Ash Gariali. I've been Matt Winning. See you guys soon.